It can happen when we drive. Somebody cuts us off and then we drive an extra 80 miles just to return the favor. It can, it can happen at work. Somebody makes our job difficult and, and we wait and find an opportunity to, to get back at it. It can happen at church. Somebody offends us and we keep a record that, of, of the offense filed in the back of our minds ready to, to, to crack it open when the time is right. It can happen anywhere. Somebody wrongs us, either intentionally or accidentally, and the urge to retaliate hits us like an, like an uncontrollable gag reflex. It happens to me. It happens to you. We've all experienced the hurt of mistreatment and misunderstanding, and, and such hurts come in a, in a variety of forms. And it can be an intolerable working situation or domestic conflicts or overbearing parents or rebellious children or a treacherous friend or, or a petty uh, parishioner or a gossipy neighbor. Our natural tendency is to retaliate, to return evil for evil, an eye for an eye. Or if we don't do that, excuse me, <coughs> or we bottle it up and let it, uh, let it uh, uh, become this slow grinding ferment inside of us. But God has a better idea. He has a better way to deal with this. And, and he has a better idea than either bottling it up or, or bursting out. And James reveals this alternative to us. He tells us not only what to do when we've been wrong, but also he tells us how to do it. So James chapter 5, verse 7, we're going to pick it up there. We're going to read the, through verse 12 and then we'll break it down verse by verse. He writes this, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what, what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth nor, or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. So, James simultaneously connects and contrasts with the previous se section. Now, it's a little bit harder for us to remember because we had an extra week in between, but, uh, but James begins here with the word therefore. And we've all heard the old kind of uh, joke that every Bible teacher says that you just can't resist. When you see the word therefore, you got to see what it's there for. That means it's connecting it. It indicates that what follows is based on what came before. But, but in, in, we also have to remember in this, though, that while he connects it, he changes the audience. And he, he changes it from you rich to now, he says, brethren. And you'll remember that James addressed oppressive wealthy people in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. And he, he exposed their wrongs and he, he called uh, for repentant uh, uh, humility in, in light of the coming judgment of God. And now, beginning in verse 7, James addresses the victims of their, of the, the, their ugliness. Uh, you could read it almost like this. Therefore, in light of the fact of the ultimate judgment of the wicked rulers oppressing you, 
be, be patient, brethren. So he's connecting the two, but he's contrasting the two because it's two different audiences. So James continues with the theme of Christ coming in judgment. He said, until the coming of the Lord in, in, the, in the passage there. The thing about the coming of the Lord is, is that uh, while persecutors should fear Christ's coming, believers anticipate it through patiently enduring suffering. And that's the point he's making, is that knowing that the Lord is coming, it's a double-edged sword. And, and, he, and he pointed out that, he, that the Lord is coming to the rich people. And the whole point of that was, you should be afraid. But now he's talking to the believers and he's saying the Lord is coming, which means our response should be, uh, patiently enduring the suffering that we have to deal with. So and you, you can't miss the fact that James has shifted to believers in this section. The, the, the man who, uh, who lives without Christ uh, lives under frustration if he tries to bring patience into persecution. If he tries to bring patience into mistreatment or, or everyday afflictions, the, uh, the natural man will just get frustrated in that because that is not what comes naturally to us. Uh, but the believer has the supernatural ability by the work of the Holy Spirit to endure under the, mis under the miseries of life, whether those miseries are mild or extreme. Uh, and, and he answers in this passage, James answers a very simple question, but it's a very important question for all of us. How can I do right when I've been done wrong? That's a good question, isn't it? How can I do right when I've been done wrong? And he answers this uh, underlying question with four commands. Two of the commands are positive uh, to embrace, and then there are two negatives to avoid. We're going to look at those tonight. But let's look at verse 7. He said, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. So, James illumines the first answer to the question of how can we respond rightly when we've been wronged with, the, with this simple illustration. And he says, just as a farmer learns to wait patiently through the growing season before he can reap the, the fruit of his labors, in the same way, Christians need to be patient. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, different ideas and nuances that are built into that whole, uh, uh, that whole illustration of the farmer waiting patiently. Um, the, the word translated patience here comes from the Greek word that refers to the ability to wait in tranquility. So it's not, you know, an impatient waiting, but it's, it's a waiting that's filled with peace. James says when, when something unjust takes place, he basically says you need to have a long fuse. You need, don't blow your top. He says, chill. You got to chill. But, but if, we're, if we're realistic, if we're honest when something like that happens, when we're wronged, when we're offended, we would rather take our offenders by the throat, wouldn't we? That's what we want to do, but God has a better plan. And his plan is, let's wait on him. Wait for him to deal with it. In fact, that's even what he talked about in Romans. We, we, he has the passage there where he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, uh, which is a whole different thought uh, that we forget sometimes. Uh, it's not just that God is saying, I will take vengeance. He's saying that belongs to me. That's my territory. When you try to take vengeance yourself, you're trying to do the work of God. And, and he doesn't tolerate us taking his place ever in any situation. And so, so he says his plan is to wait on him. And what, what, what does that mean? In, in the most 
ultimate sense, waiting on Him, when it's, it's the way, it means that, you, that you, we know that when Christ returns, that He will mete out justice uh, on those who have persecuted His, his people. But, but there's also a here and now application to that whole idea of waiting on God. Because He says, just as the farmer needs patience to wait until nature does her work, the Christian needs patience to wait until Christ finishes his, his work. That's a big part of that whole illustration there. Is the farmer has to wait for nature to take its course. The Christian has to wait for God to take his course. That, that's the whole, uh, whole uh, the foundation of all of it. God, God has a way of working out his purposes and plans on an everyday scale just as he will work out his grand plan on a cosmic scale. So, so being patient in negative circumstances, this is what it means. It means that we deliberately allow God to handle the situation in his own way and in his own time. Now, we don't like to do that. We would rather handle it our way right now. But to be, to, to be patient in the midst of suffering or in the midst of persecution, whatever it might be, means that we deliberately and intentionally allow God to handle the situation. And we say, God, you do it your way and you do it in your time. I'll just wait on you. So uh, the believers need to endure, uh, trust the Lord through, through their trials and refuse to try to get, get even for wrongs committed against them. But here's what we need to, something I want to throw in here. Being patient does not mean being inactive. Patience does not mean inaction because there is still work to be done even in the midst of suffering. The farmer waiting patiently for the harvest, he doesn't just sit around lazily for harvest time. He doesn't plant the seed and say, all right, I'm going to vacation for the next few months and then I'll come back at the harvest time and then I'll reap a harvest. That's not what he does. He, he prepares the field. He, he, as he, James says, he waits for the autumn rain and he cares for the growing crop during that whole time. Then he waits for the spring rain as the crop ripens because the, 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 the farmer back in, in Israel during that day, he, he waited patiently for two rains because it was, it was an arid region. But uh, in Israel, the, the autumn rain comes in October or November after the seed is planted. And then the spring rain comes in March or April just before harvest time. And and, and anybody who's lived in an arid place understands the remarkable, remarkable effect of a single rain. You know, we lived in Reno, Nevada, uh, and, well, in Twin Falls, Idaho as well. Both of them, both places got about seven inches of precipitation a year. You know, we, we, we get that in a, in a week here, you know. So, you know, to, in a bad day, you could get it in a day here. But, but uh, uh one of the things that if you've ever lived in a place like that, you'll see is that uh, when a rainfall comes, which they don't come very often, but when you get a heavy rain, all of a sudden these trees that are kind of dry and brownish, all of a sudden they come to life. And, and then the parched ground just blooms, uh, uh, just springs into bloom. You know, and then all these little flowers, desert flowers will pop up. They don't last very long. Uh, because the rain doesn't stick around, but all of a sudden the desert just sort of comes to life. But, but in between those rains, patience is what must be exercised and developed between the rains. The farmer plants the seed and it has the spring rain. 
Then he has to just wait until the rainy season that comes in the, or in the he plants it in the uh, fall rain, in the autumn rain. Then he has to wait patiently until the spring season rolls around and the, and the rain come, comes there. But in between, patience is what has to be exercised and developed. The farmer must wait patiently for his crops to grow. What does, what does that mean? That means that the farmer cannot hurry the process. The farmer cannot make his crop grow any faster. The farmer cannot, cannot make harvest time come whenever he wants it to come. He waits patiently, but while he waits patiently, he does not take the summer off and just hope that all goes well out in the fields because there is so much work to do to ensure a good harvest. And in the same way, we must wait patiently for Christ's return. But as we wait patiently for Christ's return, uh, that, that means, number one, that we cannot make him come back any sooner. We can't m manipulate the situation. But while we wait, we have to remember there is much work that we can do, much work that we must do to advance God's kingdom. So the, the ra reality is both farmers and Christians must live by faith. And they look toward the future reward for their labors now. So... Don't live as if Christ will never come. You know, a lot of people, we have um, Christians in, in the world today that um, I, what I would call they're, they're functional atheists. What that means is they say they believe in God, but they don't live in any way as if God is really, really there or if, as if they live as if Christ is not really returning. You know, we say, yes, I know Christ is returning, but if we really believe that, it's going to affect the way we live. It has to. If we really believe that. And, and so we have to work faithfully to build his kingdom uh, because we know the king will come. He will come when the time is right. We, we must be serving God, caring for one another and proclaiming the good news. Uh, like the farmer waiting for a harvest, we have to be patient. Re remember this. And this is a hard lesson for us to. It's, it's easier for us to understand, but it's a hard lesson for us to be able to live it out. And that is this, God's way is very seldom the quick way. But it is always the complete way. It's always the right way. It's always the way that brings about the, the greatest harvest. So, you know, we have to learn to be patient. And we're, that's a hard thing for us in our microwave society. I've, I've said it before, we are microwave people serving a crockpot God. That's just one way to, silly way to say it, is that we want things now, but we have to learn to be patient. Look at verse 8. He says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So the second commandment here relates to how we should respond internally when we've been wronged. And James says to stand firm. And this refers to our emotional fortitude or our inner disposition. And the Greek word used here means to establish or to support or to, I like this, it's, it's, it's to fix something firmly in place so it's immovable. Under stress and duress, the heart can grow, can grow very heavy. We've all been in that place in our lives, but the Spirit of God can lighten the load of a heart weighed down with pressure. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 
Similarly, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 tells us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and that we should cast all our anxieties upon Him. And, and practically speaking, this is, this is where I find something uh, very helpful that Charles Swindoll refers to it as the 50-20 principle. And I find this, the 50-20 principle, very helpful in times of, of suffering and hardship. The name, the 50-20 principle, comes from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And, it's, and that is the, really the climactic passage in the story of the life of Joseph. You, you remember the story, don't you? You know the story of Joseph. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, and then they told their father, uh, Jacob, that he had been killed by a wild animal. And as Jake, uh, Joseph's tragic life unfolded, he went from imprisoned slave to prime minister of Egypt, second most powerful man in the entire world. And then years later, after all that took place, when the uh, 17 years later, I think it was, when the, when the same brothers who had sold him down the river show up on the scene again, and they're groveling for mercy, begging for provision, how does Joseph respond to them in that moment? He responds with the 50-20 principle. You ready? Here it is, Genesis 50-20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, bring it bringing it, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the 50-20 principle to realize when something bad is happening, God is still in control. That's really the essence of it. And unless we can see beyond the one who wronged us, we will retaliate. That's what Joseph did. He saw beyond his brothers who had wronged him. He saw God in the background. He saw God manipulating. Uh, he saw God working out his plan. And, and because he was able to look past uh, and look beyond his brothers, he could choose not to retaliate. But unless we see beyond that person, then we will retaliate. That's the natural and really the, the, the carnal response. But we have to remember that God works out all things for our ultimate good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. See, if we want to be patient in suffering, we must have a, the, a big picture perspective. We have to have that. We stand firm... Because we see the big picture. We know that the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we stand firm. Like the farmer, we, we invest a long time in our future hope. The farmer is at the mercy of the weather. It's outside of his control. And likewise, the timing of the Lord's return is beyond our control. We ought to live our lives with the conviction that Jesus could return at any time. We don't know when it will occur. But we do know that it will occur. You know, we don't, we don't need 20-20 vision. We need 50-20 vision. That, that, that shift in perspective from our own limited view of things to God's divine viewpoint helps strengthen our hearts. That allows us to stand firm through all kinds of wrongs. So, so the 50-20 principle is a huge, huge deal for being able to apply what James is talking about here being able to patiently endure suffering because we know Christ is coming. Seeing Christ coming, that's seeing the big picture. We look beyond the person who, is, who, who has wronged us and we, and we see the big picture so it strengthens our hearts and we can stand firm. 
The third, third command in regard to how to respond right when we've been wronged concerns our actions toward those around us. Verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. You know, when your circumstances try your patience, and when you feel discouraged and you feel frustrated by external pressures, the natural human tendency that we have is to grumble and complain. Anybody here ever complained before? Sure, we all have. That's because it's, it's our natural human tendency to do so. But here, you know, James refers to a, a phenomenon that's it's much more insidious than silently holding a grudge. I mean, we all know, we probably all, all of us at one time or another have held a grudge to a certain degree, or maybe we've had a grudge held against us. But this is something that's even more insidious than silently holding a grudge against those who have wronged us. He, he warns us not to groan or to grumble or complain against one another. The, these believers facing persecution from the outside and facing problems from the inside, they may naturally find themselves grumbling and criticizing one another. And, and, and bitterness and resentment destroy the unity that, the, that churches so desperately need. I mean, listen, church is going nowhere when it's, when it's not in unity. And grumbling and complaining and bitterness and, and resentment destroy that unity, stops it from moving forward. So re refraining from grumbling then is actually part of what it means to be patient. It's all tied in together. I mean, isn't it odd that when a family or a business or a church suffers hardship, that the members of that community often internalize their aggression and turn on each other. You know, like the, like the dad who's facing pressures at work and when he comes home, <laughs> he turns all of that anger toward his kids or he vents his anger toward his other co-workers. Um, the, 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 that happens a lot. Or, or they turn on their leadership uh, or they turn on their children, their employees, <laughs> maybe even their pets. We, we vent our frustrations on those around us. And part of the reason for that is because we tend to vent our frustrations to, a, to what we consider a safe place. That's, kids do that all the time. Little kids will get frustrated with, with somebody or some other situation, and then they'll get angry and vent their frustration toward their mom or their dad. Well, the reason they do that is because they know mom or dad is a safe place. They, they, don't, they don't have to worry about what's going to happen there. But we, we tend to do that. We vent our frustrations and on the outside, we may appear to, to, to have patience in the midst of suffering. But the reality is on the inside, we, you know, we become this tightly wound spring that's exploding at the slightest touch on those who are nearest to us. You know, it's, it's just so easy to complain during an extended time of trial. It's just, it's natural to strike out. But here's what we have to remember. God calls us to be unnatural. Don't retaliate. Instead, we, we, we need to remember the nearness of God and be patient. James says not to grumble lest we be, be condemned. Is it not profoundly human to avoid facing a weakness in ourselves by pointing to the same weakness in others? I've often noticed, maybe you have too, that sometimes when there are two people that really have a hard time getting along, that sometimes it's because they are exactly alike. 
and they don't like what they see in the other person because it's really a reflection of what they don't want to admit about themselves. Happens all, a lot. Blaming others instead of facing our sins leaves us open to the judgment of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Do not judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. He also said in Matthew 12, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. And then James says, we just read it in that last verse, he said, the judge is standing at the door. It's kind of an ominous statement there. He's saying the judge is not very far away. He's not, the judge is not off somewhere in the distance, you know, saying, well, we know Christ is coming, but he's nowhere near right now. He's saying, no, the judge is rapidly approaching. In fact, he's a hair breadth, hair's breadth away. He's just on the other side of the door. That The appointed day may be approaching, but the truth is the judge is already standing at the door. And James is warning believers not to be in the middle of judging and quarreling and criticizing and gossiping when the, when the one whom they should be serving returns. They, they said, don't be doing that because you don't know he's on the other side of the door. You don't know when he's going to open that door. Don't be caught doing that sort of thing when he opens the door because you're asking for judgment. See, knowledge of Christ's presence and his nearness is not only comforting to us, but it can also be convicting to us, especially if we begin behaving as if we thought he were far away. So, that's important to remember. Then look at verse 10. He gives us some examples. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Which, by the way, that word finally is a horrible word for us because we want it now. And so it's like it doesn't say you've heard what the Lord brought about suddenly. <laughs> that word implies it took a while for, the, for it to come about. But it says, you, you have heard of Job's, Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians. And so the ancient Hebrew prophets uh, serve, they, they'd be very familiar with them. And they serve as an example for us and for them for how to suffer with, with patience. As I said, these Jewish Christians knew the stories of the prophets, many of whom had suffered greatly, or many, many of whom were killed for proclaiming God's message. And James is reminding his readers that even those who spoke in the name of the Lord had to endure suffering. He's reminding them, listen, you know the stories. You know that those who speak the truth of God, those who say what God tells them to say, that there are many examples of those very people walking through suffering as a result of being obedient to God. So he's saying to them, don't think that you are somehow exempt because, and, and think that somehow something is wrong because you're suffering right now. And part of his point that he's trying to get across is that God does not necessarily preserve us from suffering, but rather he preserves us in suffering. He doesn't necessarily deliver us from the suffering, but he will see us through it. And in the through it is where he develops our character. In the through it is where we gain our strength. In the through it is where we learn to really trust him. Because listen, 
It does not take much faith to trust God when things are, are great, when it could not be better. It's easy to trust God then, isn't it? But you know what? When things seem to be falling apart, when you look at things and you say, I don't see how this could ever work. When you say, I don't see how healing could ever come. When you say, I don't know how my family could ever be healed. When everything is falling apart, when you're walking through those valleys, when you're walking through that suffering, those are the times when, when we, we, that's when we need the, the Him all the more. And trusting Him, it strengthens us in that process. That's when we need His help. That's when we... That's when we learn to, to, to trust him in the midst of the suffering. And, and we know about the prophets. He, he alluded to them, alluded to the prophets of old. Uh, we know how the Israelites complained and rebelled against Moses several times. I mean, you can just take your pick, whichever incident you wanted to choose. But they, they did that because they didn't have faith that God was going to see them through. They said, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt Rather than die out here in the middle of the desert, they did not believe that God was going to see them through. And so they grumbled against Moses. King Saul persecuted David because David was becoming a powerful leader and was threatening David, uh, Saul's position. Jezebel killed many of God's prophets because she didn't like having her evil ways pointed out. Elijah had to flee for his life when he confronted King Ahab and Queen Jezebel for their sins. King Ahab brought Micaiah, the prophet, uh, they, he thought he was stirring up trouble rather than prophesying from God, so he threw Micaiah into prison. A king of Israel, we don't know the name, but he threatened persecution for Elisha because he thought Elisha had caused a famine. He had sent a messenger, uh, he had sent, uh, intended to have him killed. King Joash executed Zechariah the prophet because he confronted the people of Judah for disregarding God's word. King Zedekiah uh, thought Jeremiah was a traitor for prophesying, for prophesying Jerusalem's uh, fall. So he had Jeremiah thrown into a prison and, and, and then into a muddy cistern. The, the, the national leaders caught Daniel praying. And what did they do? So Daniel was thrown into a den of lions. And the list can go on and on and on and on and on. Read Hebrews 11. You, you'll see not only the great things, but there's a passage there where it talks about people who suffered and they were concluded in the people who had great faith. These people are examples for all believers because of their obedience and, and their faithfulness despite the hardships that they endured. And then after just mentioning the prophets in general, James just sort of zooms in on perhaps the greatest example of patient endurance under excruciating suffering. That is Job. Though Job endured incomprehensible personal, financial, and physical losses, he refused to give in to the revenge reflex, demonstrating his real faith through genuine patience. Now, was Job perfect? No. Because you begin to realize, uh, reading through the book of Job, you see that there are times when Job complained. There are times when Job said, if I could just stand before God and plead my case, I know I would be vindicated. So he had some pride issues going on there. But eventually... Uh, the, the truth is, even though he did those things, he never did stop trusting or obeying God. He never turned his back on God, even though he didn't understand it. And James reminds us that Job's suffering was temporary, even though he threw that word finally in there. And, and it lasted much longer than Job wanted it to. It, it was still temporary. And eventually it gave way to abundant, the, to abundant blessing that, that uh, reflected the compassion and the mercy of God. 
In the same way, those who patiently endure hardship today without grumbling, that's the hard part. You know, it's easy. Everybody's going to go through suffering one way or another, right? But the, the key is to patiently endure hardship without grumbling. Those who do that can rely on God's promise of ultimate reward and blessing. And it may not come quickly. It may be in this life or it might be in the life to come, but we can count on, on Him, on His blessing in our life. When our response to suffering, though, is grumbling and complaining, it really shows something about us more than it does about the circumstances because it reveals that we do not understand fully what God promises to do. When I grumble and complain in the midst of suffering, it shows that I don't fully understand the great blessing that's coming for me when Christ returns. It shows a misunderstanding of that. When we're tempted to believe that patience is impossible, God reminds us of those who did endure with patience the trials that He allowed into their lives. And we may take or we may refuse to take them as an example, but... But we are not allowed to claim that patience is impossible. James says we count them blessed who endure. And beyond just the vague spiritual overtones, what does it mean to be blessed? We like to use that word. We throw it around. You know, I'm so blessed. I'm blessed. I want you to be blessed. All these things. But, but, but I think one way to think about that uh, that's helpful, it's helpful, I think, to, to think of, of being blessed as having or sensing God's approval and acceptance. To me, that's, that's blessed. If I have God's approval and God's acceptance, I'm blessed. In this way, we could paraphrase that verse by saying we consider approved by God those who have persevered. And, and I want you to notice that James started off by talking about patience, but he sort of makes this shift in his emphasis in this verse, from patience to perseverance, because they're really, really closely, closely related. It's, they're, they're, they're tied together so much in Scripture that you really can't separate them, because to be patient means to persevere. Even though they really mean different things, they're tied together, they're inseparable. And so this shift is really a natural one when he talks about patience. Um, think of it this way, and I, I really like this. I don't remember where I heard this first. But uh, perseverance is patience stretched out. I like that. Perseverance is patience stretched out. Our tested patience deserves the title of perseverance. Patience over a long period of time qualifies as perseverance. And perseverance is required of all believers throughout Scripture. Matthew 10, 22, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm or perseveres to the end will be saved. Luke 21, 19, by standing firm or, or persevering, you will gain life. And the, the, the idea of perseverance just, just grinds against our will. We, we would much rather read quickly or immediately uh, rather than that word finally than be reminded again that God's timing and God's priorities are different than ours. And God's timing is so different than mine. Because, you know, when I'm walking through something difficult, you know, to me, 10 minutes is a long time. So, so, so you know, I don't, anything goes beyond that, Lord, this is so much. But God's timing is different than mine. I, I want the answer now. 
I want the answer, you know, in five minutes. But sometimes God's, because of God's timing and his plan and his purpose in that process, his timing and priorities are going to be different than ours. And here's what we have to know. Just by the very definition, the very nature of the word, we have to know perseverance is never instantaneous. You don't just suddenly have perseverance one day. It's something that grows in you because you patiently endure over time. You stand firm over time against opposition. There are no shortcuts to what the Lord brings about. The, the pathway before us is perseverance. The pathway for every Christian moving forward to, to reach out and see all that God has for us, every blessing that He wants to pour out on us, every character trait He wants to develop in us, everything He wants to do, the pathway is through perseverance, through faithful endurance, faithfully moving forward, faithfully doing what He's told us to do, faithfully walking in obedience, constantly moving forward with, without giving up. I also want you to see that perseverance is not the result of understanding. Sometimes we think, if I could just understand what God's doing, I could just, then I could persevere. But you know what? When you read the book of Job, Job never received an explanation from God for his suffering. We, we read the book later and we get it. Job, Job was never told. He never, you read the conversations he had with God, what God told to him. He was never given an explanation. God's purpose is not that we would develop a mind full of explanations and answers. His purpose is to bring us to a place where we trust him. If we know it all, if we have all the answers, it takes away the need to trust. James says that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God does not enjoy watching His people suffer, but He allows them to face different kinds of situations and pain in their life because there is a greater good that will be produced. There's something He wants to create in them that, that they can't learn any other way. But in the middle of that, because He is full of compassion and mercy, God can help us persevere. In fact, you know what? He can even help us want to persevere. However, He will not force us to persevere if that's not what we want to do. We, each of us must combine our trust in God with the desire to persevere, uh, with the willingness to receive God's help. Then the final command related to how we should respond uh, when we've been wronged refers to our tendency to make rash decisions and promises under, under duress. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, now I want to make a couple of things clear. First of all, the word swear here, because we, we use the word swear like a swear word, that sort of thing. It does not refer primarily to the use of profanity at all. What he's talking about here, to swear, means to take an oath or to, to, to literally means to grasp onto something with our words. It's, it's calling God into the circumstance and presenting Him to give validity to your comments. For example, somebody says, I swear by God I'm not lying. Or before God, I'll do this. Or as God is my witness, this will never happen. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. 
James got, got this teaching on oaths from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 34 through 37, Jesus said, But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, or, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You know what I see in all of this? I see an exhortation to simplicity of speech. Respond to the circumstances with a simple yes or a simple no. Answer succinctly and with authenticity. See, making oaths was a common practice back in that day, and James wanted it discontinued among the believers because here's, here's the point he was making. He's saying Christians should not need to use oaths in order to guarantee the truth of what they say. So I don't need to say, I swear to God I'm telling you the truth. I don't need to say that because if I'm a follower of Christ, I should be speaking the truth. My words should carry enough weight because I have the reputation of honesty that I don't need to swear. So I think that's a big part of what he's saying. Our, our honesty should be unquestionable. Now, that, it always brings up the question, should we take oaths in court? You know, is that something that we should avoid? Well, the oaths that are forbidden here are those used in casual conversation, not formal oaths taken in a court of law. Legal oaths are intended to bind those who make him because perjury is a serious offense. So most scholars conclude that James does not require us to refuse to take oaths in court. That's a whole different scenario whatsoever. It's a legal matter in that situation. But the foundational principle behind this whole idea of, of, of not swearing in these situations it really is rooted in the third commandment. You know what the third commandment is? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Or, you know, uh, uh, older translation says, Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, we understand that that can be true with uh, you know, when we see the dangers of judgment with the flippant use of God's name in our society, the blatant lack of respect for God and, and for Jesus is, is crystallized in, the, in how their names are being reduced to nothing but expletives. You know, which is, which is always, it, tell us, it should tell us already that there's something very different about Jesus. You know, be, be, because people are taking His name to swear and using His name as a swear word uh, there, there's already something different about him because nobody uses any other historical figures to swear by. You know, nobody gets up in the middle of the night and bangs their toe on the end, on the, the, the headboard of their bed or whatever and goes, Benjamin Franklin. You know, nobody does that. So we already know Jesus is different, right? So, but it, but it goes beyond just this blatant lack of respect. Uh, taking an unnecessary oath is another way to use the name of the Lord in vain, where you're trying to use the name of God to give weight to something that you want to claim to be true. Maybe, maybe it's because you're going to gain something from it or whatever. So believers should not need oaths for their speech to always be truthful. And when we do that, I, I believe it's rooted in this whole idea that when we do that, we are taking the name of the Lord in vain, not in the sense that we are swearing, 
uh, with profanity, but we are using his name in a way to, to try to benefit ourselves. There, there should be no reason for us to have to strengthen a statement with an oath. Always be honest so that others will believe your simple yes or no. By avoiding lies, half-truths, and omissions of truth, you will become known as a trustworthy person. Now, in light of these practical exhortations, let, let me just suggest four easy-to-understand applications. We're going to close with these four things. First of all, these, I think these are good. Uh, obviously, if I didn't think they were good, I wouldn't be putting them in the lesson tonight, but, but you might want to write these down. First of all, don't focus on the situation or you'll get angry. Don't focus on the situation or you'll get angry. Instead, be patient. Yes, you were, you've been wrong. Yes, you could express your anger through retaliation, but don't. Resist the revenge reflex and let it go. Be patient. Don't focus on the situation. Don't focus on the wrongdoing or you will get angry. Second, this is a good one. Don't focus on yourself or you're going to have self-pity. Anybody here ever have, you know, you just like to have a, you ever have one of those pity parties? That ever happened to you? Yeah, I've had those too. You know what, when I do that, the reason I have that self-pity is because I've been focusing on myself. Instead, I need to stand firm and say, you know what, Jesus is coming. I need to remember the 50-20 principle in that moment. Instead of focusing on myself, I've got to focus on the big picture. Lord, I, I say, Lord, I, that's in the moment where I say, Lord, I, I see this person not as an enemy, but as a tool. He or she may see themselves as an enemy, as my enemy inflicting damage on me. But I know you're bigger than that, God. And so I thank you for making me the object of your handiwork. Make me, God, a vehicle of your grace in this situation. Seeing the big picture, 50-20 principle. Let God get you through it and accomplish his purpose. Be strong and stand firm. Number three, don't focus on someone to blame or, you'll, or, you're, or you'll, you're, you will grumble and complain. I did not mean to make that rhyme, but it just works. Don't focus on someone to blame or you'll grumble and complain. Instead, kind of related to the 50-20 principle, instead view others as a means God uses to shape your life. You, everybody in this room, everybody listening to this right now, you have difficult people in your life. You have somebody that rubs you the wrong way, right? I mean, there's somebody in your life that you're just like, oh, you know, it's not that you don't like him. It's not that you can't stand him. It's just like, I just can't be in the room with him that long because they rub me the wrong way. But he, you know what? He, think of it this way. If I was a piece of wood and, a, and the and a master uh, woodworker was working on me, I would be thinking to myself, that sandpaper just rubs me the wrong way. But it's that sandpaper that's going to be getting rid of all those rough edges on me as a block of wood. Those people in our, in our lives that rub us the wrong way, those people that, that wrong us, the people that are, you know, whatever they, however they act, we have to remember they are a means that God uses to shape my life they are the people that they're the sandpaper people in my life that God uses 
to, to shape me and to rub those sharp edges off of me. And if I'll respond correctly, if I'll see the big picture, if I'll keep my eyes on Him and respond uh, with endurance, then He'll be able to shape me. But if I don't, then, I, then I'm not. J- just as the perpetrators of wrong are tools for your spiritual growth, those God has placed over you, around you, and under you can be tools to teach patient endurance. Don't redirect your wrath toward them. Don't put them down with your uh, complaining or, or, or your bitter spirit. Don't shift blame on other peoples. Instead, view them and what they're doing, doing to you as a means that God is using to shape your inner person. And if you'll respond in a way that honors Christ, He will shape you. Number four, and this sounds a little strange, but don't focus on the present. I mean, and I would say that with a caveat, you know, I'm just, I'm just maybe I, I would rephrase that. Instead of saying don't focus on the present, I might change it and say don't live for the present. Uh, because we do, we do have to live in the moment. This is the moment God gives us. So we have to be present in this moment and realize God is active right now, but, but I have to look to the future for the inside. I have to look beyond right now. I have to look beyond today. And, and this is a tough principle to apply when, you, when you're in the middle of a crisis. When, when you're in the middle, uh, you know, like when Peter was sinking after walking on the water, when he's sinking in the water, it's really hard for him to look beyond the moment of sinking in the water. And it's hard for us in the middle of the crisis to to think beyond the moment and say, Jesus is coming. Jesus is working in my life. God is going to see me through this. God is going to be at work in this situation. He's going to take care of me, whether it's in this life or not. I am going to be blessed because of him. Uh, We have to do that. Now, one of the ways that we can keep focused on the future instead of just the present and this is true for any situation, really, we need to memorize the the Word of God. So consider memorizing a few key verses to sort of stitch this idea into the fabric of your heart, because the more you get it into you, you know, we talk about getting into the Word. Well, that's good, but more than important, you got to get the Word into you. And, And so if we memorize Scripture, the God can use that to begin to shape the way that we respond, the way that we think, the way we act around us. So let me give you just, just three ver- uh, passages that, that deal with this kind of thing that we're talking about tonight. Romans 8.18, this is one of my favorite verses. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If I can have that verse stitched into the fiber, fiber of my being, then when I'm suffering, I, re- I, be- I can remember, hey, this is, this what I'm dealing with now is nothing compared to the glory that's coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, for our light and momentary troubles. Oh, I love that. And you got to remember, Paul's writing this. And, you know, compared to his troubles, my troubles are light and momentary. I would look at his troubles and think that's some heavy stuff. But he said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again, looking past the moment. And if this is a scripture that we can 
get into our lives to help us think past the moment when we're suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which by the way, he says, is of greater worth than, than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. He says, so that your faith may be proved genuine. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We have to learn to make this perspective a, a part of how we think. You know what? I don't know what's in store for you in the next weeks, in the next months, in the next years, and neither do you. But God does, He knows. It may be a court summons that you don't deserve. It may be an unwarranted rebuke from an employer. Or it might be an unexpected layoff. It may be a neighbor who causes you prolonged grief over some triviality. It may be a spouse who walks out, a child who rebels, or a parent who treats you like garbage. Whatever may come, the practical advice in James can get you through. Be patient. Stand firm. Don't hold a grudge. Don't scheme to get out from under it. Be patient and wait on the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, this is an encouraging passage to us because it takes the burden of having to deal with our sufferings off of us. And you say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to deal with it in my time. And so God, I pray that for anyone that may be suffering, Anybody that's going through hardship right now, I pray, God, that in Jesus' name that you would, Lord, help them to memorize those verses that we just read and that they would have an, a, a big picture perspective, that they would look, piat, uh, look past all of the present uh, sufferings and things that they're dealing with and they would look to the day, look to the future, look to the blessing that you, they know is coming, look to the future that you have for them. And Lord, in that they would be strengthened that they would be able to walk in patience and perseverance and that God, that you would use even those difficult circumstances like sandpaper in your hands, shaping us and molding us into your image. And we give you thanks for everything that you're doing and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.